support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash Chris Carl Photography Podcast. And to start off with, we always like to frame how it is that people first ended up picking up a camera. So what's the story behind you picking up a camera for the first time? I guess is the question, the first time I picked up a a photography camera or a cinema camera? Whichever came first, I guess. Then I guess it would be a video camera, right? Uh, I was, I think like a lot of people, our generation growing up in the 80s and early 90s, was just so taken with Spielberg films and Mission Impossible was a big one, Jurassic Park, Back to the Future, all those, all those really exciting movies for kids uh, and, and adults. I mean, I still love those movies. I think I was really drawn to creating your own world through a lens. My, my, my dad, I think it was my dad. He had, my parents were separated, but my dad had a, a cheesy little camera that we, we would spend the entire weekend just recreating scenes from films that we loved and really just took a, a, a liking to that. And, and it was, uh, I, I found myself kind of always behind the camera and, and directing my brothers and my cousins and just really really enjoyed trying to tell a story even at that young age or recreate a story. Um, and, uh, and just kind of, yeah, from there, it just, just kind of blossomed into, into, I, I want to keep doing this as, as long as I can. Well, a lot of people that start off with a, a keen interest in film from an early age want to grow up to be like the actor or actress that in their favorite movie, what was it that made you want to actually make the film rather than star in the film? I think, I think early on it happened out of necessity. I think no one else really wanted to be behind the camera. Uh, like you said, everyone wants to be in front of it. So out of necessity, I kind of became the one that uh, took, took control of the image. Um, it wasn't until later when I was in college for film that I really felt like I've made the right choice. I think, um, I, I think that it's such a competitive field to, 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 to even get into film, but to be an actor, you know, I live in Los Angeles and it's just you, every fourth person you meet is a, is an actor. I, I think, <laughs> I, I think that there's something, there's something really special about being able to see someone through a lens. I think photographers understand this too. I think there's a lot of empathy that goes along with seeing someone cross your lens. Um, you can kind of understand a person a little bit better when, when it's, when you're looking at them that way. And, um, so I think I really, uh, really became attracted to that element of it, uh, later on as, as I just got, uh, as I got older and more involved in, in filmmaking. So to those that don't know, obviously, this is primarily a photography podcast, but um, there's obviously a lot of overlap in recent years with photography people going over to do video stuff, I guess, for like YouTube or whatnot, as video features more and more in photography cameras. Um, But what is a cinematographer? A cinematographer is... That's a... Man, how do you boil that down to, to, to one answer? I guess a cinematographer is the person on set who's in control of 
the visuals. So, um, you know, you have your director who kind of has the vision and, and the idea and the story in mind. And really the cinematographer's job is to take that vision and take that, those ideas and those story elements and paint with light and really do the best that they can to execute that for, for the director. Um, so you're, you're, I also think like in, in a way you're, you're sort of the, the lead person in, in charge of, of the crew members. I think a lot of, you have your uh, electric department and you have your grip department and you have sound department and production and everyone kind of, it kind of all funnels up and you talk to the cinematographer and then the cinematographer, you know, is kind of a voice for the entire crew. Uh, and then you have, you know, director. And so there's a lot of communication between the two of those roles, I think. What's harder to get used to the, the language of the, the sort of the communication of getting someone's idea out of their head and then, so it's visually able to be seen by everybody, or is it just the technical side of things and actually learning the, the use of the camera, the use of lighting and so on, which one's harder? I think it's harder to, to communicate between someone, especially when you're, when you're talking big picture, uh, ideas. I think you're the wonderful thing about filmmaking is it's so collaborative. So I, you're often, you know, with, with a, as a cinematographer, I I'm often with a camera department. So I've got a first AC and a second AC. And if it's a, if it's a nice budget, I've got a DIT and I've got uh, maybe a focus puller or something like that. So there's a lot of people on just on my small team that are, you know, they know every in and out and every button of every camera that's ever been released. So that they're just kind of there to for technical support. So you're always, you're never flying alone there. I, I do think though that the communication uh, that takes practice. I think you really, you really do have to work on it. And I think that's what, that's why you end up, working with people more than once. I think those relationships are, are valuable. Creating a shorthand with a director and understanding his or her vision and kind of knowing, you know, uh, the history that you have together and, and going, yeah, so this person, when they say this word, I think what they mean is this. So just having that shorthand, I think is so important. Um, But it, takes time. It takes time to, to build that understanding. And, uh, that that's kind of where the job gets difficult for me is, is just, uh, making sure I'm, I'm really listening and understanding what, what they're wanting and, uh, and then, and then trying to communicate it back to them so that they go, yes, that, that I agree with that. Do you ever run into issues where the communication is just not lining up and maybe they're not making themselves clear or, or anything like that? Always, (laughs) Always, <laughs> always. <laughs> um, I do actually. I have been doing a little bit more directing and DPing. Um, so I do find that that happens often with uh, ad agencies or clients. A lot of times, they because it's not necessary. They don't really know how to express what they're wanting visually. So it, it, it is a lot of, we're guessing we're, we're using our own idea of what they're saying and, and, and kind of pitching that to them. And then we kind of massage it out together. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that that's pretty normal. Um, and especially, especially for people that are 
coming from that side of it. You know, they, they, don't, right. they don't necessarily have to have the, the, the vision all the time and know how to communicate it. I think that that's when it go, that's when it falls on us to go. Yeah. Okay. I, I see what you're trying to say. Let me see if this works. That's always going to be the hard part, right? Is everyone has their own language, I guess, for the job that they're doing. And it's just finding a way to, to translate even between two people that can speak literally the same prime language, but they have different words and different ways of expressing the idea that they've got. That's going to be the main running, I'd imagine. One of the one of the big differences with uh, photography and uh, motion or, or any kind of cinematography, any kind of like commercial work or really anything that I see, one of the big differences I see is that photography seems to be quite a solo performance, whereas cinematography appears to be very much reliant on collaboration and multiple parties kind of working together. One thing I'd never understood, and I'd be fascinated to hear how this is done, is if you're someone that wants to become a cinematographer, but you don't have access to that huge number of people and that production, how do you go about creating a reel and doing personal work? That's a good question. So I think for me personally, it it did require a lot of me going out and shooting on my own. It took me it took me a number of years before I could even hire crew or be hired onto a crew uh, to kind of learn that collaborative process. So I, for very early on in my career, I just thought, Oh, this is how we do it. We, it, I just have to do everything on my own. Um, and then you start, I started to create a bubble and then it's hard to understand, you know, you know, asking for help or asking for someone to pull focus. Then suddenly, am I, am I doing it wrong then if I need the help? And right. So I think, um, yeah. So I think that, Early on, it is it is a lot of uh, it is very isolating, like you said with photography. You know, you're you're basically doing the same thing. You're you're kind of running camera. You're directing. You're asking questions if it's an interview, uh, and then you're taking it home and you're editing it, and then and then you really have no one to bounce it off of other than your client. So, um, very very similar, I think. Early on, I think you it's that that isolation process, and then eventually maybe people start to take notice, and then. You can you can offer your your skills to to a, a broader range of people. Is it ever a struggle for you when someone's giving you direction and you kind of know that it's not doing the best of what could be done with the idea, and you want to take it in a different sort of direction creatively, but you kind of have to follow what you're being told by that director? Is that ever something that really frustrates you? Yeah, that can definitely be frustrating. Uh, Kind of dealt with that a little bit earlier in my career too. I think uh, that might have been more my ego trying to trying to take control. What I have found in more recent years is oftentimes if i'm if I'm really dreading having to do this idea or I think that it should be a different way, usually I can find a way to try it the way that is suggested and then offer a different approach. And, and oftentimes what ends up happening is we find a compromise between the two. Uh, I think again, it goes back to that communication between you and your collaborators. If, If there's a trust there, I think you trust that this person, even though you don't necessarily see what they're talking about yet, maybe it's somewhere between what you're thinking and vice versa. So as a cinematographer, how does photography factor into your life? Is it something you just do in your spare time? Yeah. So photography is really just a a hobby for me. Um, uh, 
oftentimes for when I'm shooting a job, we'll go do a scout where we go look at the locations and just kind of see what the light is doing and how can we figure out uh, which way the light is motivated. And and that kind of informs all of our decisions in terms of what gear we're going to be bringing and what lights we need. And so when we do those scouts, I always bring my camera because I think that uh, you really want to be able to, you can obviously look by eye and you can go, okay, yeah, I can see that the, the most, the sun's mostly coming from the right side of frame for most of the day. And, uh, but really to look at it and understand it, I think it's better to look at it through a lens. So I really bring that camera everywhere. And then I started, you know, then it started to follow me on day trips and then it started following me to events. And, uh, it just kind of became a hobby that has taken over my life in a, in a great way because it kind of, it kind of works as a way to flex those creative muscles, uh, even when I'm not working. Um, and I, and I, Think, I think it's a positive thing. I think it's I think it's good to kind of be always <laughs> <laughs> looking at it, looking at images and and understanding light and and how it works and um, we're always I, I feel like I'm always chasing like naturalistic light and uh, and natural natural movement of people and I think shooting photography and especially candid shots I think really helps to understand those two ideas. Is it something where you can see something in a still image that you can translate into your cinematography or vice versa and that you're able to kind of feed off yourself in that way for inspiration? Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I, I watch a ton of movies uh, and I, I find that sometimes it's great to just pause a movie. If you're just blown away by a shot, just pause a movie and take a screenshot of that, right? And then it becomes a photograph. And then you just right. kind of study that image and you kind of go, where, where's our key light coming from? Where's this edge light coming from? Is there any kind of fill, a lot of shadow here? Wonder if that's negative. So you're just, you're kind of taking it apart. And I think that that's kind of the the beauty of photography is you, you can kind of just stare at it forever and just wonder about it. And, and, and not just technically, but uh, what the story is, what, what the photographer was thinking, what their intention was, what are the people in, in the photo thinking, what are they, what's their backstory? Uh, all, all, all these things. You said you brought your camera along with you everywhere you went. What camera in particular was it? So I started out, um, shooting digitally with a 5d Mark two, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just a little, uh, 50 millimeter lens, which, which kind of is the, which is kind of a good lens, especially on, um, that camera. Cause I think that's a uh, full sensor. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of like the perfect, like you can get a, you can get s- semi wide, but you can also get some really nice close up uh, portrait work. And then that evolved into film at some point. Yeah. So then I got really into film. Um, a, a few years ago, I, I saw uh, a movie called Carol and in the, in the movie uh, Ro- Rooney Mara um, plays like a young student and she uh, always has this little film camera with her. And I was like, Hey, that looks like fun. That that looks a lot lighter than a 5d Mark II. <laughs> and uh, just, I decided, well, maybe I should just try it. I mean, it can't be that scary. Right. I mean, that was, that was the biggest drawback was maybe price and the fear of 
is you have to get exposure exactly right because you don't get to you don't get to try it you know twenty times. Right. That kind of that kind of blossomed and um, partner with a with a good friend of mine and we we kind of go out and shoot all the time and uh, uh, he he kind of got me really into home scanning, which uh, which really changes the experience for me. I just you just have a, a ton more control over your image at the end of it rather than leaving it all up to a lab. Right. And so you're now primarily shooting film, I guess, when you're doing photography. Do you, do you feel like it's, it changed the way that you shoot compared to when you were using digital other than obviously the, the size difference in the cameras? Yeah, definitely. It definitely changed the way I shoot. I, 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 I approach it very differently now because it's much more about patience for me. Um, I think I, I go into an image and I, or I go into a, a scene and I really think about what I'm, what I'm wanting out of it, what, uh, what I'm hoping for. Uh, you know, I really pay attention to the light. I'm using my light meter a lot more. Um, it's, you know, it's very similar to being on set for me. And I, and right. that's kind of a, uh, an appeal for me is really sitting there and thinking about things before I just shoot it. That said, I kind of went to, you know, like we all do, we go, I went to one extreme where I then was like, well, I'd got not worth it, not worth taking this photo. <laughs> what ends up happening is then the, uh, the role of film sits in there for like six months. So now I'm kind of coming back. I'm, the pendulum is swinging back in the opposite direction, which now I'm going, I'm trying not to be too precious about it. I'm still trying to uh, be very intentional about what I'm shooting, but um, I'm trying not to be too precious. So why not snap two photos of it? You know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. If I could just ask an unbelievably stupid question, um, because I'm an unbelievably stupid person, do you ever find it strange photographing in it sort of composing in different aspect ratios between photography and cinematography? Does that ever sort of jar you when you go from one to the other and you kind of, you have to change almost your eye for a scene? No, I think that's a great question. Um, and I often talk about this with other cinematographers. Anamorphic is having like a real resurgence right now. I, I talk about this with my cinematographer friends. Anamorphic is making this resurgence that that aspect ratio of uh, two to one or or two two point. Uh, I'm going to mess it up. Two point three five to one, I believe, is the other. That sounds right. Yeah. Anamorphic, and it's funny you you shoot a project on that, you know, for three or four days in a row. And then it's suddenly like my eyes, even when I'm not looking through the lens, I'm seeing things anamorphically. It's, it's amazing how, how much your vision is affected by the aspect ratio that you're looking through. And so right. I think that, I think that's a good question that like, it, it can be jarring jumping back and forth. I think too, like I found that out, earlier on, which is I would take, you know, scout photos, uh, you know, in two by three. And then the next day we're framing up and I'm 16 by nine. And then I, all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second, yesterday we could see the full roof and now we don't, um, <laughs> now we got to back up 20 feet. So it's, it's definitely a jarring. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that there are so many aspect ratios to, to choose from nowadays. I think that, it's, it's kind of exciting too. You know, you can, you can really dial in a look and decide, you know, what your story works best. You know, Wes Anderson is really 
um, known for this, you know, with his, with his recent films, like switching between different aspect ratios to, to kind of, uh, you know, tell a story differently or, or present a different tone. Um, so I mean, with Anderson, I never noticed it watching the film until it was pointed out to me. Whereas um, with Christopher Nolan films, it actually at times quite bugs me because I think it's quite noticeable. Um, as great as his films are, I'm not knocking, obviously, his incredible talent. But it's, he's the only one who, when I see it done in his movies, the changing between aspect ratios, it, it actually sometimes pulls me out of the scene a little bit. Yeah, I'm trying to think which Christopher Nolan film does that. Dark Knight does. I'm pretty sure Dark Knight Rises does. I'm sure there are scenes in Dunkirk that shift quite dramatically through um, where he wants to use an IMAX camera for like the more intense action and then switch back. That's right. I think it happens a bit more often than... I think maybe I'm just a a, a bit of a, as we would say in England, a bit of a twat and I'm noticing it more than I should do. (laughs) Let's let's move on before I upset one of my favourite directors in the world. (laughs) Let's talk about Las Vegas, one of my most favorite cities in the world. If I could live anywhere, I'd probably move to Vegas. Um, You've done a project around Las Vegas, and I I don't want to frame it in any way whatsoever. I'd rather you talk about it, if that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's it's always exciting to meet another fan of Las Vegas. It's such a... polarizing city for people people either hate it or they love it and maybe they love it for the wrong reasons or maybe they hate it for the wrong reasons but um yeah i've 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 always had a, a a bizarre fascination with the city i think it's a it's a city of i think it's an underdog city you know it it obviously has the entertainment element and the lights and it's spectacular to look at but i think that there's you know when you take a look at outside of the strip, I think you can really start to see that, um, it's, it's different. It's different than what, what you're presented. And, and it's, and it's in a, it's in the middle of a desert where it doesn't belong, where there's no water. It's just, it's a a funky, it's a funky place. And so I've had this bizarre interest in the city. And I've been, I had always been wanting to tell a story, a Las Vegas story. So spent a couple of years just kind of throwing ideas back and forth and researching and talking to different people and finally settled on, uh, a story about neon because this, the city is just, uh, so well known for its neon and, um, and, and in very Vegas style, it's all disappearing. No, nothing's really sacred there. Everything gets torn down and, and rebuilt, hmm. uh, you know, every ten years. So the the very the remaining neon is so important to to kind of hold on to. And so that felt like an important story. So I I set out and uh, to tell a short documentary about a a, a neon vendor or a neon artist um, named Tiza, who grew up in Las Vegas and. Her mom was a burlesque dancer, so they have this connection to th- this vintage '60s Las Vegas, and um, and her work is really inspired by her mom. And so uh, we set out to do a, a six-minute documentary, it turned into a 25-minute film, and now it's uh, running at film festivals uh, currently. So yeah, I feel like Vegas is generally not liked by people that haven't been there that have just heard about it or overly liked by people that haven't been there but think that the only thing to do there is to go and get drunk and gamble and kill hookers or, or whatnot <laughs> whereas actually 
like it's a brilliant hub for anyone that, that works in any kind of visual art because you can sleep in a in a decent hotel, get great food, there's people around, you know, you can enjoy yourself, but you also have access to all these amazing landscapes and these amazing spots. And there's there's a great history there as well that's like you said, it disappears, but you can still dig through and find pieces of it, which is which I actually just think is really fun. I don't know why Vegas has quite got the reputation it has. I think it's a wonderful place. I don't know if I'd want to be there at the moment because I think it's about ten degrees hotter than where I am now and I'm close to dying as it is. <laughs> right. I'm I was wondering at what point to ask this particular question and I was gonna leave it to Towards the end, because I thought it was kind of an, an interesting um, parallel to draw in a photography podcast. But I also think it might be the stupidest question I have. So I'll probably put it in now. And then it's sandwiched between loads of other stuff and people might forget about it by the end. What do you find harder technically in terms of creativity, whatever? What do you find harder sort of moving image or still frames? Well, what's harder for you to actually produce work that you're happy with? Well, really depends on the day, honestly. I think. I think I am drawn to motion. It comes a little bit easier to me uh, than 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 finding that perfect um, image. I think a lot because I think there's a lot of feeling involved with the motion. I think for me especially, I I really am a hands-on uh, operator. I really like. Um, you know, I like camera movement. I really like uh, handheld, you know, in your face, very, I, I like to follow people. I, so I think that that is, is really a, a great experience for me, but I, I think it's hard to translate that to photography. Um, that said, the, the flip side of that, I think, is that sometimes it, with photography, it's nice to not have a master. Um, oftentimes when I'm shooting video, it's, uh, it's for someone else. It's a lot of people have to approve it. Um, that handheld that I'm talking about has to be approved by eight different people. Um, <laughs> so I think there's a lot of freedom in being able to go out with my, uh, with my camera and just go, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Um, what, what happens at the end, there's no outcome with this. Uh, or no outcome that I'm that I'm aiming for, other than it would be nice to have a nice picture out of this. But uh, I think that that can be really freeing. So again, really depends on the day. So to this point, do you now ever take trips out, even if it's just like short walks or whatever? Do you ever do short trips that are specifically for you to go out and take photos, or are you still doing it sort of in between doing other things? Um. Yeah, no, I, I actually just finished a, a, a tiny little, um, social distancing road trip, uh, where I, where the goal was just to, um, I really wanted to shoot some new different neon that right. I've, that I've never really seen. And, um, yeah, just spent a, spent a couple nights on the road, sleeping in the car. Um, yeah, with the, with the goal of just, just working on the photography a little bit, just trying to, trying to uh, try a couple different things, tried three different cameras, um, some different films that I've never tried before, just, just to kind of sharpen those edges a little bit. And uh, let's just talk about film stocks real quick. Cause if you're shooting film, I've recently taken up shooting film fairly seriously and learning to develop and so on. What are your sort of go-to film stocks that you enjoy? I think like everyone, I'm, I'm a fan of Portrait 400. 
uh, I think because there's just a lot of leeway, <laughs> you know, I, I have found myself shooting, you know, a stop or two stops over and, and being able to recover highlights and, and just being so impressed with it. Um, but I, I've also really, I've, because of the night photography, I've really gotten into Cinestill 800. Um, I, th- I think that's a, it's just a really fun film to shoot. I, I'm not, I don't absolutely love the red halation. Um, no. but I think finding a way to, to shoot it and, and not blow out those, those highlights, um, has been really rewarding. I feel like you can, with the Cinestill, you can use, um, like a pro mist filter and that kills the halations. Oh my gosh, it's a brilliant idea. I'd never even thought of that. That would make total sense. <laughs> I'd love to take credit for it, but actually a previous podcast guest has a YouTube channel where he shoots film and I'm pretty sure he brought that up in his video. Um, so I believe that was Grainy Days that actually had had that revelation. But yeah, um, I, I actually really like the Halations. I, I find it... One thing I do think is that Cinestill is becoming such a popular film. It's actually probably going to define sort of this era of film photography quite a bit more than maybe people realize. I think you're right. Yeah, it is popping up everywhere. And um, yeah, I think I think that that's that's great. It, it, yeah, it'll kind of define the look, which is really cool. With your um, cinematography work, if you don't mind me asking, probably another stupid question because of my um, my lack of knowledge and my ignorance. But you've shot commercial work for the likes of um, Mountain Dew and Snapchat and, and other companies, um, and you've also made music videos. Which one is technically sort of harder to to do uh technically harder would be uh probably the music videos just because you're often there's there's not much money involved so you're kind of on your own um i might be able to have a first ac uh you know maybe maybe a gaffer to help out but yeah usually you're looking at five or less people um, when you're shooting music videos, just by the, the very nature of of the budgets, um, those those higher end commercials, um, while the budgets still aren't, you know, you, you know, you oh, there's you could always use a little more money and you could always use a little more time, but those obviously have a lot more padding and cushioning, um, especially with brands of that size. You know, there, there's just a lot more help um, in order to do it. Um, the, you know, and then, you know, I talk about this, the flip side and the shadow side, right. Is, uh, the shadow side of that is there's, there's people that, um, have a lot of say and really want, want, uh, want a certain product at the end of this, uh, when you're shooting those commercials and then music videos, it's a little bit more freeing. Again, it's the, the creative aspect. There's a lot more autonomy there. Um, which is which can be which can be really nice and 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 maybe worth the sacrifice of uh, running around uh, and doing everything on your own. At the risk of making this controversial and and pissing off some people, um, this <laughs> is the perfect opportunity for me to actually ask about something that I'm very curious about. Though there was a, I think it was a TED talk a few years ago with uh, who was it with Joss Whedon, I think, and he talked about the democratization of of cinema and and motion pictures generally and that cameras now are a lot more affordable and have a lot more features and more and more people can afford them therefore more and more filmmakers are uh, popping up with like small budgets but they're still creating their own thing do you think that's potentially a bad thing or a good thing in terms of what's going to end up being sort of created and how hard it's going to be to sieve out the good stuff my my overall 
feeling towards it is it, it's got to be positive. I think anytime you're getting, when you're leveling the playing field, I think that that is always a good thing. Now <laughs> I can, I can look at specific work and go, okay, that's, I, I'm not super happy that that exists, but, um, <laughs> I, I think it's a good thing that, that people are getting a chance, um, to get their voices out there. I, I've worked, I, earlier in my career, I worked, I DP'd for a, a director, um, Michael Peterbon, who I, love to death. And he ended up officiating my wedding. He's just such a good friend now. Um, but he, he, he used to say all the time, anyone can make a pretty picture. You know, it's, it's, it's about, it's really about telling a story. Can you tell a story? You know, and I, I think that goes to photography as well. You know, like now with these cameras and, you know, even with an iPhone, you can take an, an awesome image but what, mm-hmm. what is the story that you're trying to tell? I think that, that that becomes more interesting. And so I think, yes, let's level the playing field. But I think at the end of the day, people are, you know, good work is awesome. Bad work, boo. <laughs> but I think uh, what connects with people is, is, uh, is a story and, and a universal uh, theme. And I, and I think right. that, um, you know, people that maybe don't have maybe wouldn't normally have access to high end cameras are, are still being able to do something really special with, with, a, with a, their phones. Have you ever shot anything like 80 millimeter film um, and made short movies that way? Yeah. You know, I have a, I bought a eight millimeter camera in Portland, Oregon and have been shooting a couple roles the last couple months. Um, because things have been quiet here, I haven't sent them out to, to be developed yet, but I'm hoping they turned out. <laughs> is it, is it a different process in terms of like, cause obviously like film photography compared to digital photography, you have to be so specific and elaborate with what you do because you're, you're so restricted by um, the number of frames. Whereas I'd feel like eight millimeter, you're like even more restricted because it's all consecutive. So you could have like a complete run of something going well, and then one thing doesn't work out. And that whole strip becomes, I mean, I don't really understand the process. Does the whole strip still can you, can you kind of slice and, and splice stuff together from there? Is that something you'd want to do or would you, would you try and shoot consecutively and just make sure everything's going right? Yeah, I think you, you know, it comes in a cartridge, so there's not a lot of splicing unless you do it on the back end. Um, but okay. yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, it feels risky when you're doing it. Then you think about, you know, the rest of humanity and they've been doing it for, you know, almost forever. So, yeah. Uh, you know, very similar to taking, you know, shooting, uh, you know, with the film photo camera, I think I had to let go of those fears and those stresses. And, um, you know, my, my wife is pregnant and thought, you know, let's just, just shoot some eight millimeter and just see how it turns out. Um, uh, hopefully, hopefully it turns out, but again, I think it's, I think it's more forgiving than, than digital. So I think as long as I'm within uh, a stop or two, I should be fine in terms of exposure. And, and again, it's like, I've got the, the light meter handy. It's like hanging in the holster right beside me, always just checking things. And I never, I never trust the read on the camera itself, but, um, you know, it, 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 I also think, you know, you're, you're a photographer too. You know, you, you kind of, when you're shooting outside, you kind of know, you know, if yeah. what you're, 
if you're going to be pretty close to exposure, you know, um, with, with your readings. So hundred percent, um, is working in feature films, something that you are aiming for or would be interested in? Yeah, that's kind of been the goal, um, all along is, is to someday shoot feature films. Um, it's, it's definitely competitive. Uh, I've kind of made a nice, carved out a nice niche here and doing commercial work and some music videos, but I think it's about, you know, meeting the right people and, um, you know, it's very catch 22, right? No one's going to just give you a feature to shoot. You have to shoot one first. (laughs) So, so, you know, I'm always out there trying to meet new directors and especially young people that, you know, want to shoot a short film and, um, see if I can get my hands. But that, that was kind of my big goal for 2020 was to shoot a, shoot a short film for someone. Um, obviously things have slowed down quite a bit, but, uh, you know, hoping, you know, within a year to hopefully shoot something. Um, and the state of, of cinema today is fascinating. You know, certainly can't shoot a studio film. You need to be in the union and, uh, you work your way up that way. And, um, but you know, independent film, there's still a lot of opportunities there. And, um, that's, that's definitely a, a goal of mine in the next five years, I hope. Well, I always feel like talking something into existence is a good way to go uh, because it's like a mindset thing. You can end up kind of pushing yourself in a direction subconsciously. So let's let's do that now. Who's the director that you'd most like to work with on a feature film? That, you know what? They We don't know their name yet, but they really believe in telling honest stories. They love movies and you can see it in the way that they write. And they, um, they've got something to say that, that, right. that the world needs to hear. So that's, that's the, that's the director I want to shoot for. I, I don't know who they are yet. <laughs> are there any genres that you would avoid? Cause I, I say for the sake of transparency and you can feel free to mock this, but, um, I'm a lifelong horror fan. Um, I've always liked horror films. Generally speaking, the great thing about horror films for me is that when they're good, they're great. And when they're bad, they're hilarious. Whereas I don't think any other <laughs> film category kind of falls into that. So you, you know, you're always going to get something out of it. Um, is there any genres that you, you would not want to work in? Hmm. Um, yeah, no, I love horror. I think, I think you're absolutely right. When it's done well, uh, people try to disqualify and say it's not horror. You know, you, you have like a movie like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like oh, it's a, it's a thriller. Oh, it's a horror movie and it's awesome. Um, but, uh, no, I don't know if there's anything off. I, I guess um, I don't know if there's anything off limits. I probably wouldn't want to do a huge CGI-based uh, film. I, you know, I, I, I don't. I've shot some green screen stuff. I, I don't. I don't hate it, but I, I I I prefer a little bit grittier, more realistic looking mm. locations and things like that. I can't imagine it's fun to just stand in front of a green screen all day. I just, to me, that sounds like honestly the most mind numbing thing in the world. And I generally speaking can't stand heavy CGI films because I don't know if I've just got some kind of really forward thinking brain, but I know what's going to look bad in five years now. And I'm watching (laughs) some films and I'm like, yeah, this is clearly CGI. And anyone that thinks that this looks good as CGI, they're missing the point that they can still tell it's CGI. So it's not, it's still pulling you out of the film, you know? Maybe I'm just being whiny. No, I totally agree. I think, um, yeah, when you, if you're noticing it now, it's, it's not going to age well. No, it's been 
absolutely wonderful to talk to you. And um, I understand you're having a much better weather day than we're having here in England. So um, I've tried to curb my spitefulness towards you the, throughout the podcast. <laughs> what we always have to do with the podcast is to make sure people know where to find. In fact, you know what? I'm going to jump into something before then because I really like this question and I have no idea where a cinematographer is going to go with it. I like to ask one broad question. Um, and that broad question is, what is your worst habit as a cinematographer? Worst habit as a cinematographer. Um, oh, man, oh, man. Um, I, I don't know if this would be a habit. This is something that habitually happens is I get so, I get so worked up and nervous the night before a shoot that I inevitably don't sleep. Um, and I think that I think I don't, I think, let me say this. I think that it's okay to be nervous about a shoot. I think that that means that you care. (laughs) I think though it's unhealthy (laughs) when you do it every time and you don't sleep. I think that, um, so I guess my, my, my bad habit would be really, uh, really trying to figure out that balance between life and work. Um, I think that that, that I need to work on. Um, and I feel like I've been sleeping really well through quarantine. So, so maybe that will, will bleed over <laughs> <laughs> once this ends. <laughs> is it nerves as in excited to get going with the project or is it nerves as in you worrying about like your, what you're going to end up doing? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think, um, there's a little bit of imposter syndrome there. Um, thinking like everyone's going to figure out that I don't belong on this set tomorrow. Um, I think that that, that, that's a big fear, um, that, that I, that I wrestle with. And, and, and yeah, I think also, um, uh, with the job title comes a lot of responsibility and, and, and fearing or worrying that I won't be able to deliver on in the moment can, can definitely, definitely keeps me up at night for sure. The most important part of the podcast is that people know where they can go to find your work. So I know you have a website for your cinematography. I want to make sure people know where they can go to see. Um, the, I think it's just a trader at the moment for Las Vegas Bender. But where can everyone find what you do? Yeah, thanks. It's um, dannycorey.com. Corey is spelled C-O-R-E-Y. And uh, from there, you'll find all the links, the Vimeo link, the Instagram, um, all, all that good stuff. It's been so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. This was was such a delight. And um, I've definitely become a fan of the, the podcast after listening the last few days. So appreciate it. 